Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Grass withers, the flower fades, word of our God stands forever. So as we continue here through the gospel of Luke this morning, we've entered into a, a different uh, time period or a different section of this book and typically it's recognized that we have the infancy narratives of Jesus being born the first two and a half chapters of Luke and then it moves into John the Baptist and the launch of Jesus's ministry in in Luke chapter 3 he gets baptized the temptation and he goes off into his ministry and that continues on this initial ministry up to Luke chapter 9 verse 51 when we read this statement, we kind of passed over it, but we read this statement that uh, when the days drew near for him to be lifted up or to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so from 951 until he gets into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, is this other section of Jesus' journey out of the Galilean ministry, it's typically called, into this, this ministry uh, here and there throughout all these other towns on his way to his being taken up. There's this event that's going to happen. And so we're in this other section where Jesus really begins to focus his sights and with some urgency on the message getting out and letting people know this is what the cost of discipleship. There have been some hard messages over the past few weeks. If you've been here and you've been listening, we've said some difficult things about what it means to follow Jesus and what kind of person follows Jesus and the cost of following Jesus and really even though we're getting on into chapter 10 this morning isn't much different there is some severity to what Jesus is saying Jesus is not playing around Jesus is not 
He's, he's not joking. Not, he's not the, um, I said in Wednesday Night Bible study, he's not this Vidal Sassoon Jesus, which is a totally, I got made fun of for using that reference. But, uh, you know, he's got this flowing hair. He's just this nice guy, hippie Jesus, we might say, who's just, you know, about cuddles and warm hugs and love and peace and harmony everlasting, you know, age of Aquarius kind of thing. That's not Jesus. He has some very specific things to say and some very hard things to say. And this morning, in the beginning of chapter 10, is no different. He has an mission to accomplish, and he has a commission that he's going to share with his followers on what their mission is. But so with that in mind, what is the primary mission of the Christian? What is the primary mission of the Christian? And I bring it up because if you watch the news at all, there, there are tons of opinions. And if you're involved in watching religious news at all, everyone has an opinion about what, opinion about what the mission of Christianity is. In our social, uh, our culture, our society, we have all these opinions. This is what it means to be a Christian in this society. And there are many opinions on the front of what it means to be a Christian, what the mission of a Christian is in our culture today. And and really, I suppose the confusion is understandable because there are so many good things for a Christian to be involved in. There are so many good things for Christians to be doing. We are to be salt and light in a world that is desperately broken. We're called to love our neighbors. And in a world that is sick with sin and broken beyond recognition in some places, there are countless ways for the Christian to love their neighbor and abundant opportunities to look around and as a Christian living under the love of God towards you and love of that love flowing out to your neighbor, there are countless things for us to get involved with. And I would put a hearty amen to those things of loving your neighbor. But for many though, the church has taken and has lost its compass by taking these things that are consequential to Christianity things that are a natural outworking of Christianity and taking those things that are a byproduct, a good byproduct of the Christian mission and has taken those things and have put them at the center of who we are. And when we have done that, we've really lost the true center of what it means to be a Christian and what the mission of Christianity is. When we take that, we take these things that are absolutely consequential and good to the life of a Christian, and we make them the central driving force, we have lost, we have lost the compass that is to direct this church, the church, our own lives. Are we to do good? (laughs) Absolutely. Are we to care for the poor? No question that we are to do that. But what is ultimately in the driver's seat of the Christian life and of the Christian church? And the main mission, let me just say definitively, I believe, and we get this from this passage, this main mission of Christianity is a message. The main mission of Christianity is a message. We are a gospel-built, a gospel-centered, a gospel-driven community. And when you put something like gospel at the center of it, gospel is simply good news. What is news? What's a declaration of This is what's happened. Here's what's going on. And the center of Christianity and its main mission is a message. It is good news. It is something we say. Now that has tons of byproducts. 
good consequences of things that then come as a result of hearing this message, receiving this good news, and then bearing fruit. Bearing fruit, absolutely. But that doesn't take away from the main mission of Christianity is a message. Look with me at this passage from this morning. That's an unavoidable conclusion. The 72, or maybe if you have a translation, it might say 70. And so there's a a textual variant there that we're not afraid of. We we know where they are, that some old manuscripts say 72, some old manuscripts say 70. We're not sure which one it is. It has no bearing on the theological significance. If that interests you, we can go geek out and talk about it for a long time in my office because I love that kind of stuff, but I'm not going to bore the rest of you with it. But anyway, the, the 72, I'm going to refer to it as the 72 because that's what the ESV has. Some other translations would say 70. But the 72 then, they are sent out. And they're to take nothing extra with them, right? They don't take, a, they don't take any extra sandals. They don't take a money bag. They don't take a knapsack. There's a nice old word. They don't take a knapsack. They take nothing extra with them, and they just go. And when they go into a house, verse 5, they say, they're speaking something, peace be to this house. They declare a message of peace. If that message of peace is received, they stay there and they continue that message of peace. They're to heal the sick and say to them, they are to heal the sick and say to them, verse 9, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The message at this point in history is that the kingdom of God and its king has drawn near. We have a more clear message now than they did. Jesus was walking around and he was there, still yet to go to the cross, still yet to finish his work. They have a message of the kingdom of God. The king is drawn near. We have a more full message. But still they go and they say, they speak a message. And the end of the passage from this morning, I think, just seals it. Verse 16, after these warning to these cities... The main emphasis that they're taking, verse 16, the one who hears you, the one who hears you, that they're going out to do what? To say something, to proclaim a message. Jesus sends out the 72 to say something. They're to go and to proclaim a message that is to be listened to. This message, the main mission of Christianity is about a message, this gospel declaration of who Jesus is and what he has done that has tons of consequences and good natural consequences, but they never take place of this central message. This message, though, it comes within a context. So we go back to the beginning of chapter 10. It comes with this context, and there's a a driving worldview that heightens the urgency of this message, and it's the reality of the harvest. The reality of the harvest. Jesus says in verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What does Jesus mean by using this term of the harvest? What's the meaning of the harvest? And if we lived in a city somewhere, I might have to say to people, you know, your food does not come off of shelves at a grocery store. Someone is actually out harvesting crops and then they process them. We, we know that here. We're, we're agricultural. I don't have that hurdle this morning. We know what a harvest is, but we, we might have the, heart, the hurdle of what, how, how, we, um, how under, our understanding of the harvest, what our understanding of the harvest is. We mention harvest, and it, 
It has these, I love fall. Who doesn't love fall? It doesn't love the harvest season of this wonderful bounty of taking things in and, and collecting, apple picking, going out and getting our pumpkins, corn, soybeans, all these things going into this bin. And it's this very positive image, isn't it? Harvest season has this positive image. We're reaping, we're gathering, we're bringing all these things in. It's, it's this positive thing. But the harvest season is a brutal season. The harvest season is a brutal season. And I want you to try to think for just a second, get in the mind of, and this is weird because you can't personify corn, but if you could, imagine you're the corn stock and here comes the combine. How exciting is harvest season? It's scary. Here it comes. Here comes the harvest. So just picture with me how a combine works, right? You put the head on this thing. It's either got a corn head, soybean head, whatever it is, and you drive down these rows and it cuts that stalk. This corn, this thing has been doing this incredible work for weeks upon weeks, taking water and CO2 and sunlight and, and, and making this thing we can, uh, we can, we can uh, harvest and turn into fruit and process, or turn into fruit, turn into food and process it and eat it. We can consume it. And you might think it's just some neat little process that does that. But what a combine does is terrifying. If you think about it, don't get hit by a combine. It comes along, it cuts it off at the bottom, it through a process of gears and wheels and everything else and bends and tumbling, it takes all this whole plant in, chucks it, puts the kernel up into a of corn or bean, puts it into the container, and what's it do with the rest? It just spits it out the back. That's violent. It just spits it out the back. It casts the harvest into the wind. This is even more graphic in biblical times. Um, they had the scythe, you know... I, I often worry for some for kids, you know, that they see the Grim Reaper and he carries a scythe and they think, well, it's just a really cool looking knife. Well, no, that, that's a symbol of the harvest, right? The Grim Reaper has a symbol of the harvest. He's cutting down. He's, he's bringing in the harvest. That's why the, we're supposed to be afraid of the Grim Reaper. I'm not saying it's a biblical image. But the idea of a scythe is what you would do. You would cut all these things down, bundle them up, carry them to the threshing floor where then you would just beat the stuff, you would take the chaff off of it, you'd beat everything up, the grain would fall out, and then you'd carry off what remained that wasn't beneficial, that which was not profitable, and you would cast it into the wind, let it blow away to be gone forever, or you might put it into a fire and burn it. And this is what, this is the image that John the Baptist gives to Jesus. Luke chapter 3. Just to kind of bring a little, huh, to this. Why are you talking about the harvest so much? Luke chapter 3 Verse 17, this is John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. Uh, people were in expectation, verse 15, asking John if it might be the Christ. John answers them, I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Harvest is a sobering moment. Harvest is meant to be this sobering moment. Why do I bring this up? Why do I mention this from this text? Why emphasize the harvest? Because I want us to get the urgency they would have felt of this passage. When Jesus says, the harvest is ripe, it's, there's, that has urgency to it. It isn't, the harvest is ripe. Let's all link arms and go hopping through the apple you know, trees. We're going to pick our apples and make apple pie. No, it's the harvest is ripe. The harvest is ripe. 
there are those who, there's a harvest of souls coming. And Jesus is crystal clear that there are those who, in trusting Christ, they will inherit eternal life. But, however, there are those who, by remaining in their sin and remaining in their rebellion, will be cast like chaff into the fires of hell. This is what the harvest imagery is. This is what Luke 13, 28 tells us, that there'll be those who think they're disciples of Christ. They listened to his message. They heard him. They ate with him. They, they listened to him in their streets, but they don't truly know him. And Jesus says, what? You'll be cast out into the outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The harvest is coming. And our Savior says we ought earnestly to pray for laborers who will go out into the harvest and bring in the grain who will go out into the harvest and bring in the grain. That some will be turned from the kingdom of self and the kingdom of sin, and w- which will lead to their destruction in hell. That they would repent and believe in the coming kingdom of God and its King Jesus. That's what the harvest is about. That's what the harvest is about. And I bring it up because there's an urgency that as Christians with a message should feel. The harvest is ripe. There is going to be a reaping. And though it doesn't always turn out in apple pie, when you reap, some things are like chaff. Psalm 1, we read it just this morning. The wicked are like chaff, which the wind blows away, and they're known no more. That's the harvest. So this is the urgency that Jesus is sending these 72 out with. There is a harvest coming. There is a harvest coming. So what are we to do? What are we to do? Well, I think first and foremost and biggest, if you get one thing out of it, Jesus says this, the harvest is ripe, the harvest is plentiful, laborers are few, therefore pray. 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 Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. If I could grab one topic, and we could, we could take this one topic and fill the rest of the sermon with just this one idea, but I'll just simply say, ask these few questions. Are you praying for the witness of this church? Are you praying for the effectiveness of your own witness? Are you praying that as the harvest, we look through our community and can say, the harvest is on the horizon. Are we praying that God would send out laborers, that we would be laborers to reap the harvest, to bring in the grain, to rescue some from perishing like chaff? Are you praying that God would send you out as a worker and that he would empower you to be one of those workers? And if you don't get that point from this, you might as well forget the rest of it. But there's this urgency. The harvest is ripe. Pray. Pray. It's why we pray for an unreached people group. There's a harvest coming. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers that people would be gathered into his kingdom. But to round out, that's the big idea. And you get just that. Get that. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. But to round out the message and the rest of this passage that is this morning, there are some practical applications that, that, um, that are here. Now, there's some of them that are just specific to the time. I don't think it's wrong to have an extra pair of shoes. Like he says, don't take an extra pair of sandals. Uh, that's not the way it always goes. There later on, he tells him to take a knapsack. He tells him to take a money bag later on. So these are some things that are specific to that time. If you'll remember uh, chapter 9, verse 1 some of the same things are said to the apostles as the 12 are sent out and they're repeated in the sending out of the 72. But as we are people with a mission that is a message of peace, we find ourselves motivated by these four realities. Four realities. Broken hearts and trusting hearts lead to moving feet 
and speaking lips. Broken hearts and trusting hearts lead to moving feet and speaking lips. First, broken hearts. It's just, it's right there from the text with this harvest language. Why are they to go and to proclaim? Because the harvest is coming. And our hearts should be breaking for those who would not hear the gospel, who would not hear the good news of Jesus Christ, who would not respond to him in faith and be lost to, as Jesus speaks, the unquenchable fires of hell. Broken hearts for those around us. If the scythe is laid to the root of the lives of all and many are not meeting their end, trusting in the promise of the kingdom, they are going to find themselves burned like chaff under the judgment of God. And do our hearts break for that? Do our hearts break for that? That's what Jesus sends them out under this impulse of that the message would be heard so that you would have your eternal soul saved so that you might inherit eternal life. It's become such a catchphrase of John 3.16 in Christianity that it loses its weight, that they might not perish but have everlasting life. That's what the proclamation is about. And that's why our hearts should be broken upon this reality that the harvest is coming. Do our hearts break for the souls of those around us? Love for neighbor, love for every image bearer is is good press these days. But do we love them and care about the eternal state of their soul? Christianity and its mission is about a message. It's about a proclamation. Broken hearts, For those who are coming, the harvest that is coming, broken hearts for those who don't know Jesus. Broken hearts and yet trusting hearts. They're to go out and they don't take anything with them. They go with no extra provision, only trusting that God will take care of them. And they're under no false pretenses either. They're told right up front, you may not be well received. Not not everybody wants to hear that the harvest is coming. Not everybody wants to hear that they might end up like chaff. And so he says, you'll go out like sheep among wolves. How does that go? You may know, if you're a sheep in the midst of a den of wolves, how's that go? Is that good? No, that's not good. You don't want to be a sheep. You don't want to be the lone sheep in the midst of these wolves. And so he sends them out. It's not a good situation. But they are told to go out, take nothing, trust God, risk suffering, and to do it all, trusting in him and his goodness and his power to sustain them in every way necessary for their ultimate good. Certainly some of these people are going to outlive Jesus they aren't, Jesus is going to the cross in a little under a year probably. They're going to outlive him. And he's sending them out with this commitment. They're going to go on and minister and suffer persecution and potentially martyrdom, death, for their commitment to their king. But they're not called to achieve some purpose. They're not called to, to make something happen. They're not called to be comfortable. They're called to trust Christ. Broken hearts, trusting hearts. There's no guarantee that when your heart is broken for your neighbor, if you dare to have your heart broken for this community, there is no guarantee that when your heart is broken for your neighbor or your friend or your loved one and you plead for them to trust Christ, that it will go well for you. There's no promise of that. There is no promise that the message of Christ will be popular in our culture, ever. There's no guarantee that you can proclaim this message of repentance and faith in Christ and that it will be popular. But the burden is having your heart broken for those who don't know Christ and having hearts that are trusting Christ that he will finally and ultimately take care of you come what may. So when you have broken hearts and trust in hearts, it leads to moving feet. The 72 
have an urgency to them. They go. They go. They go into the towns. They go around two by two. They don't pack a bag. They don't waste their time with pleasantries. It says don't greet anybody along the way. That doesn't mean you can't raise your finger and you wave and you can't, you can't uh, well, farmer wave at anybody anymore. Don't greet anybody on the street. You've got to be always about the gospel. That's not, the greeting back then at that time would have been an extended period of all sorts of pleasantries. It wasn't just talking about how's the weather in the grocery store. It's come over, it's greet, it's, wait, it's spend time in some sort of formal greeting. He's saying skip all of that. You're about a message. You are to declare a message. There's urgency. They go. They are about their master's business. Yes, they continue to have meals. They eat. They drink. They minister to the sick. But they don't lose sight of their mission and their message. They are singular in their devotion to the king and his kingdom. Their feet, their movements, their conversations reflect the consuming purpose that binds every believer today. As Jesus said in John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. All those who have been pursued by the Father, and as those who have been pursued by the Father, we now move to serve and love others. So broken hearts, trusting hearts, either moving feet and speaking lips. The mission is a message. It is good news to be told of in all of its fullness. Warning, illuminating, encouraging, pleading, loving, Romans 10 tells us that no one is saved without the hearing of the gospel. How can they believe if they have not heard? And how can they, not, how can they hear if someone doesn't say? A message. No one is saved without hearing the message of the gospel. How can anyone hear if no one asks them? And so then, who is to go and share this good message, this good news? Who is the one? Is it just, you know, I'm up here, so I, I, I say all these uncomfortable things. Is my the one that says it? Who goes? Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary says this. The same Lord who calls us to follow him also calls us to go out and preach the gospel. Every cross-carrying disciple has a cross-proclaiming witness for Christ. This is the heartbeat that then moves into the Great Commission we have in Matthew 28. That we would go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded you. Why? Why does it go into that? Because we have broken hearts over the harvest that is coming and those that might perish. We have trusting hearts that God will give us exactly what we need and what is good for us. We have moving feet that go and we have speaking lips. We have speaking lips. The king has come and he has completed his mission. The message they had is not the full message we have today. He, the king has come. He has completed his mission that brings the full peace of God to a sinful people. It's the peace of God given to those who have been justified by faith in this king and his work on a cross. This is a peace we did not deserve, but that while we were still enemies of God, he loved us and Christ died for us. He who knew no sin, Jesus, takes our sin upon himself so that through repentance and faith, We'd be forgiven of our sin, justified, made righteous in his sight. This is true, incredible peace. Peace not circumstantially. Peace not some flighty temporal peace. How much energy do we expend? Think about how much energy do we expend in our lives fighting for flighty temporal peace? How much work do we put in for an afternoon of nothing to do? You know, I mean, my generation is 
fighting and fighting and fighting, stay up late one night getting stuff done so I can have three hours of, of ease in an afternoon, fighting and investing so much energy into a few minutes of peace. Flighty, temporal peace. That is not the peace Christ offers. Christ is offering, and the message of the gospel is offering concrete, eternal peace with the creator and ruler of the universe. (laughs) That's no flighty peace. That's real peace. And when you know this peace, this message of peace becomes your message as well. When you know that kind of peace, how can your heart not be broken as you look out in the harvest field and desire that they would know this peace, not flighty temporal peace, momentary peace that flights and flits and floats and goes away and dissipates, but real peace. My question is, what message of peace are we resting on and rejoicing in? We shouldn't rest on temporal peace provided by the thousands of light and momentary things this life offers, but we should rest our souls in the hands of a Savior who died for you, died for us, and brings us to God to secure our eternal good. We should repent for running to lesser goods, lesser pieces, instead of running to God for what is true peace. Repent and believe this good news. There is a a gospel. There is a message of peace. If we can be forgiven of our sins and reconciled, real concrete peace, that when you see it, your hearts are broken. You trust in Him for everything. If He has not given us Christ, how will He not freely give us all things, Romans 8 tells us. And it produces moving feet and speaking lips that those around us would hear and know this peace that is found in Christ and in Him alone. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would, in my own heart, in the hearts of those gathered here this morning, Increase the joy and the security that is found in only in the peace that you provide. As the harvest is ripe, as we look across our communities, we look maybe in our own houses, as we look in our extended families, we look at our workplaces, we look at the community, we look around us, God, the harvest is white, is ready for the harvest, God. And I pray that you would give us broken hearts, urgent hearts, trusting hearts, moving hearts, speaking lips, all of it fueled by our own joy and what you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. God, make it real to us. Make it real to us that our joy and your peace would be full. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.